Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. This episode contains one instance of a racial slur. Please use discretion. It seemed back then like it was miles and miles between my grandmother's ramshackle, as I call it, and my parents' more modern ranch. But really, it was probably only about a quarter of a mile, if that, if you walk the road, if you just walk through the pasture that separated us, really more of a holler. Than anything, if you walk that, it was even shorter. But um, that was the that was the more fun walk to to leave the beaten path, to leave the road, and to find yourself in that pasture, which then offered all sorts of opportunities for fun distractions. So one of those distractions was was playing dead, and I got the idea. <laughs> um, from books, really, and, and understanding what vultures were. Back then, we called them buzzards. That was the that was the country term for for a vulture. But I wanted to see them more closely. I wanted to sort of understand who those birds were, and so I would play dead. I would. <laughs> <laughs> because because a vulture would, if you play dead, they might come close to see if they might have you as their breakfast. Yeah, they, I, you know, breakfast, brunch, dinner, whenever I was out there roaming, Phoebe, it was just this thought as a kid that that I could I could lie out, play dead, close my eyes, be as still as I could with a peek every now and again to see if one of those those buzzards, those vultures, that was circling over me might come down to investigate. My grandmother had always told me that that the first thing that a buzzard would do was to peck my eyes out. Back then, I didn't have binoculars to really see them up close, but I can remember on one of those occasions playing dead and, and actually seeing the red head of a turkey vulture. And and turkey vultures are, are unique in that turkey vultures, in part, um, find find their their carry and find dead things by smell. Um, they have a well-developed sense of smell, of olfaction. And uh, I didn't know that at the time, or I probably would have, you know, foregone a couple of baths. Drew Lanham grew up in Edgefield, South Carolina, on a family farm. He's loved birds for as long as he can remember. He remembers trying to understand how they could fly, and wishing he could trade places with them. It was this fascination with a creature being able to 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 defeat gravity somehow. Uh, you know, and at the time it seemed magical to me because as a you know, in between the times that I was playing dead, I was trying to fly. <laughs> I was jumping off of anything that I could jump off of, um, running fast into the wind, 
cutting out cardboard wings, making parachutes out of parasols and plastic bags, all of those things in, a t- in an attempt to do what I saw birds doing without effort, without even trying. In one of his attempts to fly, Drew broke his collarbone. He says it was worth it. He told himself it was a broken wing bone. When he was in the second grade, Drew made himself a pair of binoculars, two toilet paper tubes that he taped together. They didn't magnify anything, but he says they did work, in the sense that they blocked out everything else. The first time I remember stopping for a bird sound and and wanting to hear more and, and wanting to, to see more was, again, one of these walks from my grandmother's place to my parents' place. And it was on a spring morning. And I can remember on those spring mornings hearing wild turkeys gobble and just that, that sound of those wild turkeys gobble. I could not see them. And hearing barred owls call that from from deep in these woods that I could not see. And so there's this, and then this, and these sounds, this soundscape that would just make me lose time. And so it was just sort of this very primal birding with just my eyes and my ears, but even more than that, just feeling that place. He says he was overwhelmed by it and knew he would devote his life to birds. I'm Phoebe Judge, and this is Love. Even though all Drew wanted to do was study birds, when he went to college, he studied engineering. He'd always been good at math and science, and he says that over and over, he was made to feel like he could choose one of two paths doctor or engineer. His father had passed away, and Drew says he felt like he needed to make a sensible choice. He remembers telling his high school career counselor that he loved birds, and that the counselor replied that engineering would help him earn the lifestyle to enjoy birds as a hobby. So he went to Clemson University for engineering. He got a full scholarship. He did well, and he hated it. He remembers telling his girlfriend, who would later become his wife, that he felt completely empty. And then, one day, he went back to his family's farm. He wandered around in the fields where he used to play dead, hoping a vulture would come close. And that's when he heard something familiar. This bird, you'll only know it's there from that song, that rising... I I fell in love with prairie warblers back, gosh, when when we had lost the farm, so to speak, after my father died. And I was was back home for a a visit um, to collect some things after my mother had moved away from the farm to be closer to work. And as I was, was leaving that day, I'm sort of lamenting the the situation and understanding what sort of passed by, what's gone on. And there, I heard that song. I heard that ascending. And 
And and there it was, this this prairie warbler in this fresh, fresh plumage singing its heart out. And it stopped me in my in my tracks. And I just had to sit there and, and listen to it and just watch it throw its head back and sing that song for all its all its heart was worth. So that that bird is special to me because it was one of the first birds that I can remember seeing after our land was was devastated. And so every spring now, it's one of the first birds that I look for. You know, other people have swallows or robins or some some harbinger of, of spring. For me, it's a prairie warbler. And when I hear my first prairie warbler, it sort of resets things for me. It gives me um, sort of these memories of the past, but it also um, just re- sort of reminds me of, I don't know, it reminds me of why I love birds so much. Do you think that moment caused a shift in you somehow? Oh, big time. Big time. It... Um, at the time, I was still stuck in engineering. Um, I hated it. I did not like what I was doing, and I knew that I needed to be doing something else. And so that was an opportunity at that point in time and hearing that bird to to reconsider my path because I was doing I was living by expectation. and I was living trying to live up to the expectations of others who said, you know, you're you're a you're a black kid who's good at math and science. Do this, and um, I was a black kid good at math and science who wanted to do that. I didn't want to do what everyone else wanted me to do. I wanted to apply my brain and my heart and my passion towards birds and towards wildness and towards conserving wildness and wildlife. And that prairie warbler, that tiny bird really was inspiration for that change in that it it sparked um, sparks flew from that bird to me and, and lit a fire that gave me enough courage to say okay enough of the hoops jumping and living by others expectations I've got to do what I've got to do and and I'll always be I'll always be thankful um, to the prairie warbler to that little prairie warbler after that Drew went back to school and changed his major to zoology, giving up his full scholarship. He started spending time with ornithology graduate students. He says he was fascinated that this group of people could identify birds just by hearing them, something he'd always done as well. He graduated from Clemson. He and his girlfriend got married and had a daughter. He says that his first choices for names were, of course, after birds— Robin and Phoebe, he was overruled. And he started studying for his PhD in forest resources. He says the first time he saw another black birder was on television, Dudley Edmondson. This nature program came on and and it was about this this black man who was out in nature um, as a photographer, but was he was also a bird watcher. And I watched Transfixed as my, my daughter sort of crawled around and I, I recorded that show and I would have an opportunity to meet Dudley in, the, in, in person um, a few years after that. But to, to have a life where you go 
you know, 23, 24 years before you see someone practicing your passion who looks like you, it was an important thing. And I think it's an important thing for people to see others who look like them doing what it is they love to do. Dudley Edmondson grew up in Columbus, Ohio, in the 60s and 70s. When I was a kid, in my neighborhood, <laughs> the other kids called me Yul Gibbons, which maybe is a reference that not too many people will get, but he used to be Grape Nut Cereal's pitch man as an old white dude who used to talk about edible plants uh, a lot in the commercials. He talked about many parts of a cattail or edible or something like that. I'm Yul Gibbons. Many consider me an expert on natural foods like cattails. Yes, they're edible. So when the kids in my neighborhood, mostly out, pretty much all African-Americans, they'd see me, they would quote Yul Gibbons and, and laugh at me um, all the time. And so, yeah, I mean, no adults and no kids were into nature. I was literally the only person I knew of of, of African or just any person of color, really, that was into nature and the environment. And the only people that were not were white people, uh, school teachers um, and, you know, friends and things like that. So, no, I, I guess I didn't have any, any role models. What do you want young people of color to know about spending time in nature? Well, first and foremost, that it's good for your mental and physical health. I say that's number one. Um, and that it's not just for white people. Um, never has been. Uh, it may appear to be, but <laughs> that is not the case. And to don't really limit yourself and the things you like and, and don't like. Don't, don't think that just because black people do this, Black people do that, that those are the only things that you should ever do. Uh, you're a human being. You live in the United States of America. Uh, it's supposedly a free country, uh, but I know that doesn't apply to everyone. Um, and, you know, but just the same, it's, I, I would say, don't limit yourself just because white people are known to do this thing or that thing. You know, black people don't swim. Uh, black people don't, you know, fly fish, whatever, you know, all of these kinds of things. It's like, that's just ridiculous, unnecessary limitations you're putting on yourself. You do whatever you want to do. Um, and I think that's uh, it. I just, I don't want young people to limit themselves based on their ethnicity and, um, you know, who they see doing things. Uh, you can be anything you want to be. And, um, uh, don't let anybody tell you otherwise. With his book, The Black and Brown Faces in America's Wild Places, Dudley Edmondson says he was basically just trying to create a set of outdoor role models for himself. As he put it, to make sure I wasn't the only African-American male who was interested in nature. Drew Lanham says that when he's out on a trail, the chances that he'll see someone who looks like him are only slightly greater than those of sighting an ivory-billed woodpecker. Have you ever have you ever been scared or approached by anyone when you when you're out birding asking you what you're doing or why you're there? Oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um 
you know, it's it's almost an, an expectation. So um, I'm constantly on the lookout, but sometimes I'm surprised. I was surprised by um, by a farmer once who who proceeded to tell me how how it was better. Um, it was a better time when when niggers picked cotton instead of um, the way things are now, and so that was um that was startling right to have a conversation with someone who told me that you know for all intents and purposes what my real job should be would be picking cotton that 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 i have some sort of natural propensity towards that so what did you say to him i was i was pretty much speechless um i had been watching these birds called white crowned sparrows that day um, from a public road and, and was approached by this man who owned this farm um, who's, who's since deceased. But um, I, was, I was stunned, really. I sat and I listened, and I thought, um, I don't think this man thought that he was being insulting. In 2013, Drew wrote a tongue-in-cheek guide called Nine Rules for the Black Bird Watcher. The first rule is, quote, be prepared to be confused with the other black birder. Yes, there are only two of you at the bird festival. You know, carrying um, carrying your binoculars along with other forms of ID so that when you're inevitably stopped, um, birding while black, you'll be able to convince the authorities um, that you're not out there lurking as some wild Negro up to no good. Um, from from the Trayvon Martin case, um, and and thinking about um, how we are tired, and 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 even going around to some of the 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 stores um, locally and in other places that I've seen where you can't. You can't go into a store with a hoodie, so I say don't wear a hoodie ever. Um, not birding at night, <laughs> you know. Um, that's that's a range change thing, and so you learn after experience of being stopped or being detained or being followed um, as as a black man that that birding at night is something that that you might not want to do i i i say that being a black birder that um that blackbirds all blackbirds whether icterity or birds that just happen to be black are are our birds so you know those are some of those rules but they are they're sort of these well it's satire you know it's um and and good satire hopefully comes from um, from real life, and hopefully those nine rules get people to understand that being a, a birder of color, you know, who we are creates um, situations that we have to deal with. And so I'm, I was happy that in, in creating the nine rules that, that people sort of took it to heart. As Drew has said, birding is not what you can ID through binoculars. It's a feeling, an immersive understanding of all that's around, thinking of the history of the people and the land.
Support for This Is Love comes from Indeed. Hiring someone new can sometimes feel like finding a missing puzzle piece. The right person can complete a team, but the search can take a long time. And sometimes it feels entirely up to chance. Indeed is designed to help you find that perfect match much easier and much faster. Indeed's matching engine learns from your preferences for job candidates and becomes more accurate over time. That means the more you use it, the better it gets. You also don't need to worry about the busy work of hiring. Indeed will help you with scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash thisislove. Just go to Indeed.com slash thisislove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash thisislove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Embracing nature is more than just going for a walk now and then. It's reconnecting with the elements. It's harnessing the power of natural ingredients. It's putting the earth first. For over 50 years, Nature's Sunshine has been sharing the healing power of nature as they work towards a healthier planet. Their manufacturing facility is 100% powered by sunlight, and they divert 95% of waste away from landfills. If you're looking for a sustainably made herbal supplement, you might want to check out Nature's Sunshine and their new power line. Power Beats are a superfood performance booster that can help enhance both performance and blood flow. And Power Meal is a satisfying protein-packed superfood shake that comes in sustainable packaging made with nearly 40% post-consumer recycled plastics. Now that's something you can feel good about. This Earth Month, you can enjoy 25% off your first order with code NSP. Just go to naturesunshine.com. That's naturesunshine.com and use code NSP for 25% off your first order. Today, Drew Lanham is a professor of wildlife ecology at Clemson. He says that he schedules his classes and meetings around when the birds will be out. He thinks about birds all the time. He visits the same places year after year to check on various species to see if they're still there. According to a 2019 study by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, North American bird populations have declined by nearly 3 billion since 1970, about 29 percent. And according to a report last year from the Audubon Society, two-thirds of bird species in North America are at risk of extinction because of global temperature rise. And and so that, that longing for for birds and I and I not only long for birds that are yet among us I long for birds that are extinct birds that that we know are are gone forever um in part because of things that that we've done so I'll I'll be in a place and I'll imagine hearing being in blackwater cypress swamp for example and imagining what it must have been like to have Carolina parakeets and these green and gold careening, screaming flocks flying through colonnades of thousand-year-old trees draped in Spanish moss with dappled sunlight coming in to glint off of their feathers and the intelligence of those birds and the sociality of those birds. And, 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 and sometimes I think I can hear the echoes of their calls. 
And I, I imagine what that place might have been like with those birds, but I, I, I have to connect that then, for example, to um, enslaved peoples who would find refuge in, in those same swamps, and that there were humans and birds finding refuge in the same place. And, and now, um, thankfully, um, that in, enslavement in, in, in the form of chattel enslavement is 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 no is not with us in this country. Um, the vestiges of it are. But then I, I also think about the birds that are forever gone, that not only are those Carolina parakeets gone forever, but that ivory-billed woodpeckers that would be double-wrap knocking on those big cypress um, bowls are, are gone, that, that backman's warblers that would have been in stands of of cane, of river cane that would have been growing in tree falls. Um, I, I think about all those those absences, and even though I've never seen or experienced any of those birds, I feel an emptiness in not having them there. He tries to bring back these birds by creating them again. A life-size ivory-billed woodpecker with wings outstretched, a Carolina parakeet, a bird that hasn't been seen in a hundred years, with its beak open, screaming ahead. He cuts them out of plywood, hand-etching the patterns on each, and then painting them. I'm, I'm being very careful to depict them as they might have appeared in life. And with each brush stroke, the bird comes to life. And at some point, after all the paint has dried, after I've gone back, I've made these corrections, I've made all, I've done all this research to make sure the proportions are right and that the eyes have life in them. And I hang that bird from the rafters and the wings move in a slight breeze or the bird turns on that, in that moment, that that bird lives. I've I've created something at least in my mind that is the closest I may ever get to that bird living. And I've I've seen these birds in museum trays. I've I've had the opportunity to hold an ivory billed woodpecker in my hand, a passenger pigeon, a Carolina parakeet, a backman's warbler. All those birds I've had the opportunity to sort of see laid out um, birds that once lived. But it's it's my attempt at making them, of animating them, of reanimating them. Throughout the Western Hemisphere, there are at least two dozen bird species that are said to be lost. A lost bird is a species that hasn't been seen by anyone for decades. All that we know of them now, we know from old photographs, drawings, or museum displays. They might be extinct, but they might not. We just haven't seen them. But people are looking. What well, What is it like to go back to a place where you've been many times before and notice now that the birds have disappeared? Feeling the absence of birds is... It's this, it's this hollowness. It's this emptiness of of life and action. It's as if someone had erased some 
beautiful art from a page and you're left with nothing except erasure marks because you know the birds were there, but, but they've, they've disappeared. He told us it reminds him of going home the night after his father died and seeing his shoes on the floor. His father still felt present. When he goes to a place where the birds have disappeared, even though they're gone, you still feel a presence. You wonder what you're not hearing. Can I tell you something wild? Sure. And given your response to this, we will or will not cut it from this interview. Okay. Do you know what I've been doing since I was a little girl? What's that? I've been taking the hair from my hairbrush and putting it outside for the birds for their nests. Perfect. And my grandmother did this her whole life, and she had this wonderful white hair, and she'd been doing it forever. And right before she died, uh, she found a nest in a tree, and it was completely covered inside with her white hair. Wow, what a gift. I mean... Is that something we should... Yes, <laughs> yes. putting... Okay, because yes. I really... It's pretty crazy to catch me outside putting my hair around on all the bushes. Well, that's that's a really cool thing. And, uh, you know, it's a... Um, it's it's sort of a way of giving back, right? It's, it's a way of giving back. And, and you talk about your grandmother having done it. Your grandmother probably watched those before her do it. And in, in that way, that's a legacy passed forward. And you can imagine that hair cradling, nurturing a nest of eggs and then keeping those naked young warm. Well, I'm very happy that you didn't say wrong, Phoebe. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's that's that's a cool thing. Um, you know, there there are other things that 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 people do that you sort of advise against. Sometimes, for example, people will put out um, string, you know, um, yarn or, or or plastic string or other things that um, aren't good for birds that um, that sort of litter the environment. I remember having my students out just last year and there was a robin's nest with all of this trash that had been woven into it. And it was very artful and it's a sign that 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 birds are able to adapt and to take what in many instances is sort of given or left behind and and sort of convert it into something useful. But wouldn't it be better if those birds weren't incorporating the trash and the carelessness that we left behind into their nests and instead incorporating maybe hair that someone leaves? Or I've watched, I've watched birds fly down and pluck the shedding fur from a dog, which is really super cool. So, I, you know, I think one of the things, I know that one of the things that I admire about birds is their adaptability, their ability to persist in, in the face of all that we do, sort of the onslaught of damage that humans have caused, and that for someone leaving hair behind for a bird from their own head, um, I think that's a kind gift. We first spoke with Drew at the beginning of March. We called him again a couple of weeks ago. 
What I'm seeing is that because people are stuck at home and things aren't coming to them, maybe besides Amazon packages, the one thing that that is coming and unexpected is the birds that they're seeing. And people seem to now have this newfound fascination with birds that they might be seeing at feeders uh, that they've put up. Birds are the new entertainment, it seems. Well, Well, birds bring us the world. Here we are, sequestered, quarantined, hunkered down, however you want to put it. And if you look out your back window, side window, front window, there's the opportunity to see birds. And those birds, many of whom are homebodies in a sense, those birds that we're used to seeing on a on a daily basis that live with us, chickadees and titmice and red-bellied woodpeckers and house finches and pigeons and red-tailed hawks, those, those, those birds that we're used to seeing, we can consider sort of homebodies, even though they aren't sequestered, they aren't on travel restrictions, but then suddenly you look at your feeder and there's a rose-breasted grosbeak that's traveled across the Gulf of Mexico and suddenly it's in your yard from some tropical place or you're hearing wood thrush in the woodlot across from your house and suddenly there's a bird from Guatemala that's brought the world again to you. The birds are still flying. The rest of us might not be, but the birds are are still continuing those migration paths that they always have. Yes, they, they are. Birds are always moving, and in our stasis and our lack of movement, hopefully, and our staying at home, if at all possible, then we get to recognize just how much the world moves around us. And so being still invites an appreciation of motion. And in that appreciation of motion, I think there's some meditation to be had if you're if you're able to sit and watch and listen and suddenly too you begin to recognize in in your own restriction how important your backyard can be for the travels of of these birds that your little patchwork piece of a larger quilt becomes a can become a critical space for a bird to grab food to pile on some some more fat reserves so that when the conditions are right um, it may stick around for a day or two or three and one evening that bird lifts off and is gone on that next leg of its of its journey maybe a few miles maybe hundreds of miles but that you had the opportunity to be there and witness again um, this period of, of rest of refueling this period of respite i wow you know um and if it took some of my black oil sunflower seeds so much the the better that i was able to to help a little bit you know i I think it expands us i think it um it gives us some feeling of participation and and kind of this global this global thing that's going on in a in a good way as all the bad things go on around us globally we can contribute uh, in a small way to some bird making the next leg of an epic journey so learning those common birds that northern cardinal 
what many people grew up calling a red bird, that Carolina wren, that brown thrasher, or even a bird that is in many yards still in the South, the white-throated sparrow and white-throated sparrows, this this very mournful sort of song that a bird that is headed much further north sort of tells us that the season is changing and soon these birds will be in places far away from us. But when we listen for those sounds, when we listen for those sounds amongst the, the trains and planes or automobiles of our sort of normal living, then we learn to tune in, I think, in a, in a different way. You're then sort of able to parse through your mental computer, all those algorithms, all of the, the, the decisions that you're making daily about whether to take this Zoom call or that Zoom call. And you can focus on something different and beautiful right in your backyard. This is Love is created by Lauren Spohr and me. Nadia Wilson is our senior producer. Susanna Robertson is our assistant producer. Audio mix by Johnny Vince Evans. One of my boyhood favorites were Bob White Quail and that. (laughs) Julian Alexander makes original illustrations for each episode. You can see them by following us on Instagram at This Is Love Show. We're also on Twitter and Facebook at This Is Love Show and would love to hear from you. I've spent so much time thinking about the Phoebe bird, and I think I've convinced myself that birds that aren't Phoebe birds are saying Phoebe because I think that there's another bird that actually has a bird sound that is like Phoebe, but it isn't a Phoebe bird. Do you know what that is? Yeah, that <laughs> the song of, of a Carolina Chickadee. Yes, a chickadee sounds like Phoebe. Yeah. Phoebe, Phoebe. Our website is thisislovepodcast.com, where you'll find a link to Drew Lanham's memoir. It's called The Home Place, Memoirs of a Colored Man's Love Affair with Nature. What other bird call do you like? There are, there are a few that are kind of annoying. Well, they, they, they can be. Um, but like those mockingbirds are so horrible to me in the early morning. <laughs> I can't. Well, and it's, we're about to get to that time of year where I know my alarm is now 5 a.m. when they start. Yes. Well, I, you know, it's the, they're looking to make more mockingbirds. <laughs> this is Love is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. We're a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX a collection of the best podcasts around, including one of our other shows. It's called Phoebe Reads a Mystery, and it's just me reading a chapter of a classic mystery novel every day. Right now, we're on the Moonstone. You can find out more by searching Phoebe Reads a Mystery wherever you're listening to this right now. I'm Phoebe Judge, and this is Love. Well, I want to thank you very much for uh, talking again, and uh, keep safe. Well, Phoebe, thank you so much for um, thank you for uh, allowing me to speak about this. It's um, it's certainly a love of mine, and I um, 
I relish the opportunity to get to be able to do something in these times, hopefully to to get people through the days. Radio Topia. Celebrate Earth Month this April by harnessing the power of Mother Nature with Nature's Sunshine's new power line. From power greens with over 200 plant-based nutrients to support gut health and foundational nutrition to power beets that can improve performance and blood flow. Not to mention Power Meal, which delivers plant-based calories from Whole Foods to help keep you both energized and feeling satisfied throughout the day. This Earth Month, you can enjoy 25% off your first order with code NSP. Just go to naturesunshine.com. That's naturesunshine.com and use code NSP for 25% off your first order. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Socks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. Radio Topia. 